Sea to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely you and I am with you always and every, sorry, I with you always to the very end of the age. This is the gospel of Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you this morning that you are indescribable and untamable, that you are all-powerful, and yet, Father, that you've drawn near to us in the coming of your Son, in the pouring out of your Spirit and the giving of your Word so that we can know you and love you. And we pray this morning, Father, that these, uh, this time we can spend now looking at this part of your word would help all of us to understand more of who the Lord Jesus is and what it means to follow him as his disciple. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, I wonder how you would answer the question, what is God doing in the world? What is God doing in the world? If you think for a moment, you can realise there would be many different answers to a question like that. The atheist would say, grow up, there is no God. Uh, The New Age spiritualist would say, God is doing whatever you do because God is the life force inside of you and so you do what God is doing or something like that. Uh, The average Kiwi might shrug and say, what are you even talking about? But as Christians... The Bible tells us God is real, God is alive, and he's intimately involved in the world today. But how? What is he doing? Is there any rhyme or reason to history? Does God have a plan? And if so, how would we know what God is up to? And whatever God is doing, what does that have to do with us? Can we be part of it or should we be part of it? Or do we just kind of live our lives and and do what we want to do and hope that at some point through quirks of fate or whatever, what we're doing lines up with what God is doing. Well, we're jumping today into some very famous verses from Matthew's Gospel and I don't think I'd be exaggerating to say these verses have changed countless lives and have changed the course of history because they answer those questions for us. They answer the questions of what is God doing in the world and what does it have to do with us? So let's just set the scene here a little bit. Uh, It's the very end of Matthew's Gospel, kind of a strange place to jump in for a one-off talk, but Matthew, you can go home and read that. But in, in the story, of course, Jesus has just been crucified and then has risen from the dead. And so we're at this climactic concluding moment where he has this final meeting with his 11 remaining disciples. And we're going to focus on what he says to them But just briefly before we do that, as we get started, look for a moment at the reaction of the disciples when they first meet Jesus. Did you notice what happens? Verse 17, we're told, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, there's nothing strange about worshipping the risen Jesus. That's what you'd expect. What is strange is that Matthew records for us, some doubted. 
Maybe the shock of Jesus' death was still too raw. Maybe they thought this was a hoax. Maybe they just hadn't connected the dots on the Old Testament promises leading to this moment. Whatever the reason, Matthew is very honest, isn't he? He says, even in the presence of the risen Jesus, some of his disciples experienced doubt. And I'm sure that all of us who are Christians can recognise that experience in our own lives. Maybe that's you today. Maybe right now you find yourself in the midst of some significant kind of doubt. And if that's you, or for one day in the future when it is you, I want you to notice two things about this. The first is just to simply say, doubt can be a normal part of the Christian life. That that is, doubt doesn't disqualify you. Uh, You've got the 11, the, the chosen 11, physically in the presence of the risen Jesus and they're still not immune to doubt. But the key is they still worship Jesus. I wonder if the key for us when we face doubts is to hold on to what we do know. It won't take away all the doubts straight away but even when we doubt things we have so much reason, so much evidence we can hold on to for why Jesus is trustworthy, why Jesus is who he says he is When we experience those doubts, don't give up on what you do know. Hold on to those things and continue to worship Jesus, even amid your doubts. But the second thing to notice is the kindness of Jesus in the face of his doubting disciples. You could sort of imagine, couldn't you, that here is the risen Jesus with some of his disciples in front of him doubting, saying, really, after everything Here I am standing in front of you, having kept this ridiculously crazy promise to rise from the dead to show you who I am. And you still doubt? Go away. That's it. You've blown your last chance. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't turn the disciples away. In fact, as we're going to see, he still welcomes them in and uses them as part of what he is doing in the world. And the same can be true for us. If our desire even through all of our doubts, is to continue worshipping Jesus and following Jesus, he's not going to drive us away. In fact, he might even be so gracious as to use us in the kinds of things we're going to look at now. So what does Jesus say to the disciples? Well, he delivers, as I'm sure many of you know, what's become known as the Great Commission. But there is a danger in seeing these verses only as the Great Commission, that is, as something that Jesus tells them and us to do. Because if we, if we only focus on that, we miss what is actually at the heart of these verses. Because what Jesus tells us to do as his disciples is sandwiched in between two crucial things that he says about himself. So let's start by looking at verse 18 and what he says in verse 18. <coughs> he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now just pause for a moment and let those words ring in your head. Ponder what he is saying. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If anyone else in history said those words with a straight face, they would either be a crazy person or just pure evil. But this is coming from a man who has lived the most compelling life in history, who's lived the only perfect life in history, who predicted that he'd rise from the dead, 
and so can actually stand there with credibility and say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus claims to be God's chosen king, the Messiah. He claims to be God in the flesh. He claims to have authority over every person, in every situation, in every time, in every place. Over New Zealand and over Christchurch and over St Stephen's and over your life and over my life. It's, it's not the small Jesus that you so often see portrayed in the media or described in some churches or the one that, frankly, we can sometimes squeeze into our lives, kind of like gap filler, you know, fitting in where we think he fits. This is Jesus standing up and saying, I am king over absolutely everything. <coughs> now, we could spend a lot of time thinking about the implications of that because the implications are as far-reaching in all kinds of ways as you could possibly imagine. But what's the implication that Jesus focuses on here? Look what he says. He says, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That's the implication that Jesus focuses on. Because I have all authority, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That's, that's what a disciple is. It's a follower of Jesus, someone who trusts him, someone who obeys, obeys him, someone who lives for him. And as far as Jesus is concerned, the instruction to make disciples flows from the reality of who he is and the position that God has given him with all authority. That means that from the very start, from day one, to be a disciple of Jesus was also to be a disciple maker. Not just recognising Jesus' authority for yourself, but having a commitment to the idea that Jesus' authority is over everyone, over my friends or my workmates or my neighbours or my golf buddies or my teacher or my doctor or my parents or my children. And so because Jesus has that authority, he expects his followers to share a commitment to making disciples of others. And it's clear that these are words that still apply directly to us. There's a few reasons for that, but the key reason is the reason Jesus gives. He still has all authority in heaven on earth. He didn't say this is going to finish in the year 2000 and then we'll hand over to somebody else for a while. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth now. (coughs) And so every person in the world owes him their allegiance. Every person in the world should bow the knee to Jesus. Now that's an unpopular idea. (coughs) In 21st century New Zealand, in most times and places down through history, but especially in a place like 21st century New Zealand. In our society, the idea is that whatever form of spirituality you choose is the right one for you. You can hear that idea all around you, can't you? There's not one true religion. There's not one way to God. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as it makes you happy or as long as it makes you a better person. Or, you know, I'm glad that Jesus works for you I'm glad he makes your life a little bit better, but please don't ram your Jesus down my throat. And we can be tempted to agree with all of those sentiments, can't we? Instead of saying, actually, it's not about me ramming my Jesus down your throat. Jesus is not mine. 
I am his. It's actually flipped around. It's not just that I chose Jesus as my personal way to live a good life. Jesus has authority over me and over you. This is not one of many options. Jesus is God's risen king with absolute authority and so he tells his disciples, make disciples of everybody everywhere. Now, how does that happen? How do we make disciples? Well, we we can't look in great detail at that, but the passage does give us three clues or three ways that Jesus spells out here, three key words, if you like. Uh, For the grammar buffs among you, uh, these three words I'm going to show are participles. If you know what a participle is, God bless you. Uh, There's not enough people who love grammar. Uh, But participles, they, they really... They hang off the main command, if you like. So the main command of this passage is make disciples. That's the big key that Jesus is laying before them. And then he gives them three words that kind of flow out of that. Going, baptising and teaching. Okay, so let's look at each one of these really quickly, even though they could all have their own talk given to them. Uh, The first one is going. And so you can see straight away that part of making disciples of all nations means going to other people. It doesn't just mean sitting back and waiting for people to come to us. Uh, Jesus expects us to take a certain kind of initiative in this whole process, to go to others with the news that he is Lord. Now, for some people that will mean literally going to other nations, like from Australia to New Zealand or something like that, or from New Zealand to Spain or Papua New Guinea or wherever it may be. But for most of us, it will mean something quite different. It might mean simply going to your neighbour. It might mean going to a friend or to a family member. It might mean just being brave and saying to somebody sometime, I don't know if you know this, but but I go to church most Sundays and I was wondering if you'd like to come along sometime. Or it might mean inviting someone to a playgroup or to a four-wheel driving day or to a board game night or to one of many different things that try to introduce people to Jesus that they might become his disciples. So we take the initiative, we, we go. That's the first idea. Uh, the second is baptising. See what Jesus says, he says, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now you're going to notice me here deftly sidestepping any detail on what baptism is or who it's for precisely, whether it's for children or not and those kind of things. But whatever else we say about baptism, it is part of the Great Commission uh, and so we can't ignore it completely. Uh, baptism is a crucial public sign of repentance and of faith in Jesus. Uh, it's a way of publicly declaring or marking out that you belong to the one true God, Father, Son and Spirit. And the third key word is teaching. We make disciples through teaching. Uh, being a disciple, it, it's not a shallow thing. It, it's not a part-time job. It's not pray a prayer of conversion when you were 16 and then cruise through life with your get-out-of-jail-free card for when you die. Uh, Making disciples is about taking ourselves and other people deep into God's word, deep into the commands that Jesus gives. We need to actually know what it is that pleases Jesus if we want to live as his disciples. Uh, I've used this illustration before. If you want to please me by bringing me a cup of coffee, I'll be very glad that you wanted to please me, but I won't actually be pleased because I don't like coffee. 
Uh, cash does the trick or <laughs> ice cold ginger beer on a summer's day, but not coffee. Right? So if you want to please me, you need to know what it is that pleases me. Same with following Jesus. But it's obviously not just about knowing what pleases Jesus. He doesn't say, teaching them everything I have commanded you. He says, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. When we read the Bible, when we think about it together in this kind of setting or sit at home on our own or in a small group or anywhere, the goal isn't just to know what it says or to master the Bible. The goal is to be mastered by the Bible, to have our lives changed so that we're living in obedience to our risen King. So it's going, it's baptising and it's teaching, all those things working together to make disciples. And in a sense, that all seems kind of obvious, doesn't it, when, when you lay it out like that? That is, when you think about Jesus' absolute authority, you think he is who he said he is, he rose from the dead, God's given him all authority, of course we want to make disciples. Of course we want to be better, more faithful, more obedient disciples ourselves and we want to help others to do the same. And yet, when we look at our lives, if we're honest, we can see how easily this slips off the agenda, can't we? How easy it is to forget about this, how easy it is not to prioritise this or not to think we have a part in this, that maybe it's somebody else's job. And that is, that is not at all to say that we're, we're all terrible at this, not at all, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but it is easy, I think, often for this just to slip off the radar and, and not to have the kind of place in our lives that Jesus seems to think that it should. And I, I wonder what's going on when that happens. I wonder what's going on when the whole idea of making disciples doesn't seem very important to us anymore. There's probably a few things, but I wonder if one of the key things that's happening there is maybe we've lost sight of Jesus. That is, I wonder if our struggle to be passionate about making disciples is actually a struggle to be passionate about Jesus. I don't think the solution, if you're hearing that and thinking, oh yeah, I probably really aren't thinking about making disciples and having that as part of my life in any way, I don't think the solution to that is for me to say, well, you're terrible, start making disciples. I think the solution to that is once again to lift your eyes to Jesus. Maybe the problem is that we haven't really grasped his global authority over everything, over every square inch of creation and every square inch of our lives. Maybe it's not immersing ourselves enough in Jesus and his word and pondering his glories and pondering his mercy to us and rejoicing at how good he is and spurring one another on to do the same. Maybe that's where we're falling short. I think, <clears throat> think disciple-making as a task looks small when Jesus looks small. I think disciple-making as a task looks like a privilege and looks glorious when Jesus looks glorious. When I fix my eyes on Jesus, when I consider his universal power and his authority and his glory and his majesty and how he's transformed my life, <clears throat> how he's made a difference, not just for this life but for my eternity, when all of those things come into focus for me, Jesus comes into focus and disciple-making as a task comes into focus. So, brothers and sisters, this 
is what God is doing in the world. This is what God is doing. He has sent his son into the world as our saviour to die for us. He's raised his son to life and given him all authority in heaven and on earth. He has poured out his spirit and he's gathering disciples together from every nation. <coughs> and the normal, <coughs> excuse me, the, the normal way that he does that is through his disciples making more disciples. That's how it happens. And so it's great for us to ask the question, how am I playing my part in what God is doing in the world? Because he doesn't do something that he says, I'll I'll just get on with that and you go do whatever you like. Jesus actually says to us, be part of what I am doing in this world. Now, when we ask that question, how is this part of my life? It's really important to say this is not overseas missionary or bust. This is not I either go somewhere else and do it or I stay here and don't do it. Uh, We all have families to raise or jobs to do or we have socks that need washing or lawns that need mowing. We have health issues that are real. We have all kinds of things in our lives. So the question is not so much just how much time are you spending on this or have you gone to another country to do it? The question is, as you have opportunity, how are you involved? That's the question. In whatever way God enables you, how is the authority of Jesus shaping your life by driving you to be part of making more disciples of Jesus? A lot of the time it can be things that seem small and unimpressive on the surface. It can be three minutes a day that you spend for two or three people to become Christians. It can be after church saying to yourself, I'm going to be that person. I'm going to be the person that doesn't talk about the weather or the All Blacks but talks about something to do with what I've read in the Bible that week or what we just heard in the sermon. It can be sending someone a card or an email with a Bible verse to encourage them. It can be inviting someone to church or giving someone a Christian book to try and engage with them. It can be putting your hand up to lead a Bible study group. It could be saying to one other person, let's read the Bible together. Uh, I mentioned families a moment ago. No greater place to make disciples than in your own home with the people that you live with. It can be a million and one things. And as we do those things, little by little, one foot in front of the other, we'll find that we as a church and we as individuals are playing our part in what God is doing in the world. And if you don't know where to start, I'm going to drop Jay in it here. Go and talk to Jay or talk to someone else that you trust and say, I'd love to be part of this in a bigger way than I am, but I'm not sure where to start. Can you help me? I think that would be a conversation he'd like to have or that anyone would like to have with you and work that out together, what it looks like. But as we finish, there's great news at the end of this. Remember I said that Jesus gives that command, but it's sandwiched between two things that he says about himself. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, but at the end, Jesus gives a promise that puts a whole new angle on all of this. Look at me at the very end, verse 20. Jesus promises, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, can you imagine anything more paralysing, more terrifying than Jesus saying, right, you lot, I've done my bit, 
I'm putting my feet up now. You get out there and make disciples and I'll be watching. It's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, as you go about this business of following me and bringing others to follow me more closely, I will be with you in it. I'll be right there with you. It's not over to you. It is with the help of God we can actually do this. Jesus hasn't just left us. He has poured out his spirit. He has given us his spirit so that he is with us to the very end of the age. And in everything we do, but particularly in this task of making disciples, we're not trying to do it in our own strength or by our own abilities. We're doing it with the help of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we're doing it with the help of the one who promises to be with us in all of our fears, in all of our failings, in all of our weaknesses. We know that he's with us. He is at work as we seek to make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words from the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you've given him all authority in heaven and on earth and we pray that you would help us to see that more clearly and to see how we can be part of making disciples of our risen King. And we praise you that he is with us by his spirit, by your spirit, dwelling in us and enabling us to fulfil this great work. And we pray with thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.